Let's continue our time of worship by opening our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 20. It's on page 254 in your pew Bible, if you'd like to use that. Now, I trust that song we just sang uh, expresses the prayer of your heart. Speak, O Lord, till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. You know, that song, that prayer can be sung confidently in light of the biblical truth that we sang earlier in our service through that song, Cornerstone. That song is based on Ephesians 2.20, where Paul is writing to the church. He is writing to fellow believers and says, you are fellow citizens with the saints. You are members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The cornerstone's the most crucial stone in the building because it ensures that the rest of the building is aligned properly, that it is stable, that it is square. It is the rock on which the entire structure rests. The Bible says, in the temple of God, the living temple, Christ Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the foundation. And every believer is a living stone within that structure. It's a beautiful picture. And I want you to think of that in relation to Jesus' statement in Matthew sixteen eighteen: I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not prevail against it. And for this reason, Hebrews 12.28 says to believers, since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and please God by worshiping Him with holy fear and awe. We ought to be filled with thankful hearts today. If you know Christ Jesus as your Savior, you, you are part of the living temple that is absolutely unshakable. I love our Vacation Bible School decorations. I thought everyone did a, a great job. I think they look absolutely fantastic. But you know what I really appreciate about these decorations with all these heavy rocks and pillars and everything? They can make me look fantastic. Ugh, look how massive and strong I am. Isn't that incredible? I mean, I've been working out and... I can toss these stones like there's nobody's business, right? This is, a, this is a mighty fortress up here. We have pillars and we have boulders and we have rocks. But the fact is, we know that this whole structure is collapsible, right? We know that these walls after VBS will very easily be torn down because they're fake imitations of the real thing. And that's what the kingdoms of this world are like. All of the political, educational, societal, corporate, economic structures built by humanity simply will not last. Hebrews 12 says all of creation, all of creation will be shaken and removed so that only what is unshakable will remain. So when all is said and done, what's going to be remaining standing for all eternity? One thing, the kingdom of God. And that's why it's so important to be part of that kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ.
David's kingdom was a faint reflection of the real kingdom, the ultimate kingdom to come. Overall, David was a good king. But if you've been with us through our study, you know that David was certainly not a perfect king. David's kingdom was strong. It was solid. But it certainly was not unshakable. Absalom's revolt proved that. And as we come to chapter 20 today, and David returns to Jerusalem, having succeeded to to crush the conspiracy of Absalom, we see that his, his kingdom is still standing, but it is still somewhat unstable. David faces certain difficulties upon his return, which show that human sin produces instability, but God's kingdom never collapses. I think that's how, how this particular chapter fits within the, stra- the framework of Scripture, the storyline of the gospel. Human sin produces instability, but God's kingdom never collapses. So let's see how this principle plays out in 2 Samuel 20 and how it relates to our lives today. Consider first the rebellion of Sheba. 2 Samuel 20, verses 1 and 2. Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tent, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. Now this was a different kind of rebellion than we saw in the case of Absalom. When, whereas Absalom and his men attacked David, attempting to remove him from the throne, Sheba and his men abandoned David. They withdrew their support from him as king. And this secession was the result of a conflict that had erupted at the end of chapter 19. You might remember that from last week. A conflict that erupted between the tribe of Judah and the ten northern tribes of Israel to decide who would get to escort King David back to Jerusalem now that Absalom had been defeated. The men of Israel said, well, there are more of us. You're one tribe, we're ten tribes. We, We represent all of Israel, therefore we should bring back the king. The tribe of Judah said, no, the king is actually related to us. He is our own flesh and blood, therefore we should be the ones back Uh, be the ones to escort back the king. And the end of chapter 19 closes with these words. The words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. And I thought of Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You know, this conflict could have been probably easily quelled if the men of Judah had simply responded with gentleness to the men of Israel, even though they were complaining. They could have worked out an arrangement where all of Israel could have brought back David in a manner that was beneficial to all. But their harsh words stirred up anger, and and that's what happened here, and things quickly went from bad to worse. And that's what brings us to the beginning of chapter 20, where we're told that a worthless man named Sheba 
took advantage of the conflict by trying to gain a following for himself. Now, what's been said when we open the door to sin, somebody's ready to walk right through that door. And a lot of times in the middle of a conflict, there are certain individuals that actually see conflict as an opportunity to step in, to, to, to work up people's passions and tempers in order to gain a following for themselves. And sadly, there are Shebas among God's people today. Individuals who, who take advantage of a difficult situation, a conflict to gain a following for themselves. Such people are of no moral worth. We're not talking about their intrinsic worth as a human being made in the image of God. We're talking about their moral worth because they bring instability instead of blessing. And God hates those who sow discord among his people. Titus 3 says, avoid divisive people, have nothing to do with them because such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. And Sheba's influence brought a a, a destabilizing impact on the kingdom of David. When this conflict erupted, just just one blow of the trumpet and a 10-second speech was enough to get most of Israel to leave David again. Well, verse 3 introduces us to another destabilizing effect of sin, and that is the ruination of victims. 2 Samuel 20, verse 3. And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house, and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them, for they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. This account of Sheba's rebellion is is interrupted with this odd note about David's concubines. And we ought to be asking the question, why introduce that here? Why now? Now you might remember what happened with these concubines, which I will review in just a moment. But if the purpose was to simply um, uh, fill in the gaps of David's return, just kind of uh, covering all the details, then the narrator could have easily put this verse near the end of the chapter when David actually arrives back in Jerusalem and also kind of make it like a footnote and oh, by the way, here's what he did with the concubines. But the narrator doesn't do that. He puts this verse near the very front of the chapter, front and center, so that we can no sooner get into this narrative of chapter 20 before we run smack into this verse. Why does he give it such a prominent position in the chapter? Well, for one thing, we can't read verse 3 without thinking about Absalom's horrendous violation of these women when he rebelled against David, having sex with them on the rooftop of the palace. And uh, those acts were probably tantamount to rape. His vile act fulfilled God's prophetic word to David after he had been guilty of committing adultery with Bathsheba. Remember what God said back in 2 Samuel 12, verse 11? The Lord said to David, Out of your own household I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. So let's just back up. I want to talk a bit how, how sin brings brokenness and ruination into the world. Uh, David should have never multiplied wives to himself in the first place. 
God's blueprint from marriage for the very beginning has always been one man, one woman, strong bond, one flesh, God-made, lifelong union. That was clear at the very beginning of Genesis, and Jesus reiterates that in Matthew 19. And Scripture specifically commanded kings, do not multiply wives to yourselves, and yet David did. The misery of these women, who would have been very young women, came about by David's accumulation of wives, his adultery with Bathsheba, and his son's Absalom's violation of them years later. Now, these women did not wind up homeless. They did not go hungry. David continued to provide food and housing for them, but he would have nothing more to do with them. They were confined, isolated, and alone. Imagine being a young lady in your 20s. That gets called on by the king to be one of his sex partners, if you will. A wife or a concubine, but there's many of them. You're just one of many. And he has his way with you. And then years later, his son forces himself on you. And what you get out of the deal is you get confined for the rest of your life, the next 30, 40, 50, 60 years, living in isolation. You have housing, you have food, but you're confined in secluded quarters to live out your days because of what they did to you. W.G. Blakey writes in his commentary on verse 3, quote, All joy and brightness were thus taken out of these ladies' lives, and personal freedom was denied them. They were doomed, for no fault of theirs, to the weary lot of captives, cursing the day probably when their beauty had brought them to the palace and wishing they could exchange lots with the humblest of their sisters that breathed the air of freedom. End quote. Dale Davis adds, There is simply something intensely irretrievably sad about verse 3. End quote. Do you feel it? Does the brokenness of these women who truly lived find its way into our hearts so that our hearts are broken for those who are victimized by the sins of others and live with the scars of other people's sins against them for the rest of their lives? Don't think that this is something that was just relegated to a certain time period back in David's day. This kind of reality is is more prevalent today than ever before. This past week, just a few days ago, I went into the heart of the Beechwood District of Rochester and met with Joshua Horn, the, the new executive director of 441 Ministries. We sat for a couple of hours and, and talked about this. And he talked about how they're trying to meet the needs of the people in that community. There's, there's a problem of homelessness and drugs and prostitution and violence and so much going on. But he believes, and rightly so, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the answer to all of that. And we talked about their stated mission, which was, and it's on their website, which says, to see our neighborhood flourish spiritually, relationally, and economically as the gospel of Jesus Christ is expressed in the thoughts, words, and deeds of its residents. End quote. So evangelism and discipleship 
plays a huge role in their ministry to the community. And I noticed that on their website, right below their mission statement, is this statement, this quote by Dr. John Perkins. We live out our call most fully when we are a community of faith with arms wrapped about a community of pain. That's a powerful quote. There's a lot of pain in the world today. And some of it is owing to our sin. There is pain we bring into our own lives on account of our own sin. But much brokenness is also brought about by the sins of others. Because people are not only sinners, people are sufferers. They suffer on account of their own sin, but they also suffer on account of other people's sins against them. An obvious example of this would be a crack baby, right? A, a, a newborn that's addicted to crack, right? He or she suffers the consequences of this addiction, but would we say, well, that's the baby's fault? Well, of course not. That is the sins of the parents being visited upon their child. And Scripture says at times that carries to the third and the fourth generation. Some examples are, are pretty obvious, of how the sins of others cause brokenness in other people's lives. And it's easy, perhaps, in a congregation like ours to talk about, you know, how terrible it is to be born as a crack baby and what, you know, uh, a, a horrific thing that is and, and how could parents do such a thing to their newborn. But some examples, though less obvious, hit closer to home when we talk about how sin brings brokenness into people's lives. How, how people's lives are broken, not just because of their sin, but because of the sins of others. And I thought this past week, especially considering the ruination of women, which is what this point is, I thought about the link between pornography and sex trafficking. A connection that many people conveniently ignore or, or simply deny altogether. That's something we don't want to think about because according to statistics, 68% of church-going men view pornography regularly. And yet my guess is, is that all of those men would be uh, strongly opposed to any form of human trafficking. Globally, porn is a $97 billion industry. And the U.S. accounts for $12 billion of that number out of the entire world. And here's the point. High rate of consumption mean high demand. Right? If you keep wanting this stuff, they got to keep producing it. Well, where are they getting these people? The U.S. Department of State just a few years ago revealed that some traffickers pose as model actor agencies. They use fraudulent recruitment techniques to coerce women and girls and, and even men and boys into signing vague contracts and then threaten them with legal action or the release of compromising photos to force them to participate in pornographic films. With approximately 42 billion visits annually, 42 billion visits annually, Pornhub profits millions each year from illegal and abusive content. You want to heal broken people? First, do no harm. 
Right? That's what Hippocrates, the father of medicine, said. But more importantly, that's what Scripture says. Romans 13.10 Love does no harm to a neighbor. So if you want to stop sex trafficking, do your part and stop viewing pornography. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And we do that positively, not just by stop doing things that we shouldn't be doing, but by doing things we ought to be doing, by proclaiming the gospel and walking worthy of the gospel as those who have received the gospel. This means that our words, our actions, our our character, our relationships, and our lives should reflect the love and the truth and the glory of Jesus Christ, King Jesus. In commenting on verse 3 of 2 Samuel 20, John Woodhouse writes, Quote, these sad women represent something important about David's kingdom. It was a kingdom that suffered the consequences of sinful men. David himself was responsible for the sadness of these women. So was Absalom. David was not the kind of king who could wipe away her tears. Unquote. But we know the king who can, right? And that is King Jesus. Uh, We sing about this in the song, Hosanna. We we sing quite a bit here at church, and I thought of the lyrics this past week. As part of that song, we sing to the Lord, In your kingdom, broken lives are made new. You make us new. In your kingdom, broken lives are made new. You make us new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone, no matter how broken they are, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, everything has become new. Psalm 147.3 says, The Lord heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. That's the king that we serve. That is the king whose message we are called to proclaim and to live out in this broken world. What sin ruins, God restores. And he does that through Jesus Christ, his son. In Exodus 34, God introduces himself to Moses as, quote, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. He says, I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. The Lord goes on to say in that passage that while he allows sins, consequences to endure to three or even four generations, he lavishes his unfailing love to how many generations? To a thousand generations. That that is God's inclination to, to replace brokenness with blessedness. Bill Arnold writes, quote, because of Yahweh's nature, sin has a limited lifespan, but love lasts forever. End quote. Yes, praise the Lord. Human sin produces instability and brokenness, but God's kingdom never collapses. His love endures forever. Well, there's a third contributor to the instability of David's kingdom, and that is the ruthlessness of Joab. Look at verses 4 to 13. Then the king, that is King David, said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah. 
But he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba the son of Bichri will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out after him Joab's man and the Carathites and Pelophites, that, that's David's bodyguard, and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba the son of Bichri. And when they were at the great stone that is at Gibeon, a mesa came to meet them. So now he, he's caught up to them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment and over it was a belt with a sword to its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to a mesa, Oh, is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard and with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand, meaning his left hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And one of Joab's young men stood, took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway. And everyone who came by seeing him stopped. And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway... All the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. Ruthie was telling me that she was reading this text the other day and said, Amasa's death caused the first instance of rubbernecking in Scripture. <laughs> right? It's like this body is lying in the middle and, and everyone is slowing down and stopping to see this gruesome sight instead of continuing on their journey. And so... A young man sees what is happening and says, i got to get this body out of here. So he, he drags Amasa's body out of the way, throws a garment over him, and finally the traffic flow resumes. The murder of Amasa, the one that is discarded so carelessly, is not the first time that Joab had shown such ruthlessness. Remember, he murdered Abner when David wanted to make peace with Abner, the commander of Saul's army. He viciously stabbed Absalom three times and then turned him into a human pinata for his ten guardsmen as they beat him to death when David wanted his son spared. And even as David grieved for his son, Joab had no patience with David but rebuked him sharply saying, you better get out there with the men or I swear to you not one of them will remain with you tonight. Joab was a firm believer that might is right. Joab saw the sword as the solution to just about everything. And that was the case here. We don't know why Amasa was delayed in returning to David. Maybe it took a longer time than David thought it would to, to gather troops together. Uh, uh, maybe he encountered some unforeseen obstacle in his way. But, but he is delayed. And so Joab sends Abishai, the brother of Joab, out with the troops, including Joab. Joab had been running David's troops up to this point, but clearly David now had a beef with him since Joab had murdered his son Absalom. So anyway, uh, Abishai and Joab are with their men pursuing uh, Sheba the son of Bichri, and, and Amasa finally catches up with them at uh, this apparently a well-known rock, a large stone at Gibeon, six miles northwest of Jerusalem. So they're not that far outside of the city. And, and Joab goes to greet his cousin. Uh, 
not only a colleague in terms of their uh, political leadership, but actually his physical cousin. He goes to greet him with his right hand. Now, the narrator points that out because it's significant because the right hand uh, is used for war. And his right hand is empty, and he goes to, to greet him and to pull him in with a beard to give him a customary kiss that, is, that is, was quite common in that day between comrades and family members. But as he does so, the sword slips out of his scabbard, or what might have been a lengthy knife of about 18 to 20 inches. And, and some commentators believe that this was even by design because Joab was a magnificent warrior, and perhaps he had deliberately had a scabbard that was too large to sheath his belt or, or his, uh, his knife or his sword so that as he went forward, it fell out, making it very easy to capture this left hand. So he pulls in his cousin as if to give him a kiss. And as he pulls him in, he thrusts that knife or that sword right into his gut. And it's so vicious that, that his gut spill on the ground and a second blow is not even needed. Joab and Sheba are both rebellious, but in two different ways, aren't they? Uh, Sheba, in his case, walks away from David and his kingdom explicitly. You know, we have no part with you, son of Jesse. Let's get out of here. And he, he takes his men and he literally walks away from, the, uh, from David and his army, uh, formally withdrawing their support, doing so visibly. Joab rebels in a different way. Joab doesn't abandon David. A Joab would be loyal to David. He would recognize David as his king. But Joab is one who stays in the kingdom, but he refuses to be controlled within the kingdom. That is to say, he acknowledges who his king is, but he is continually insubordinate to that king. He would say David is king, but he repeatedly disregards David's will, though he is the king. Likewise, there are a lot of people today that call Jesus Lord, but they don't live like it. Jesus said, you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do the things that I say. So why do you call me Lord? I'm not your Lord. I'm not your king. You, 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 can, you continually disregard my commands. And Jesus had these strong words to say in his Sermon on the Mount as he uh, looked ahead and told people what would happen on the day of judgment. Jesus said this. This is powerful words to hear. He said, not everyone who says to me in that day, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. You know, just this morning, I got a text from a couple of friends and colleagues that just uh, encourage me quite regularly on the morning of the Lord's Day. And uh, one of my Bible colleges and coaches from, uh, from my Bible college days uh, sent me a text where, which had the biblical exhortation, preach the word. And then he added this quote from J.C. Ryle that I thought fit in really well with this morning's message, so I included it. J.C. Ryle said this, quote, People never set their faces decidedly toward heaven until they really feel that they are in danger of hell. 
I am convinced that the first step toward attaining a higher standard of holiness is to realize more fully the amazing sinfulness of sin. End quote. The amazing sinfulness of sin is seen right here in 2 Samuel 20. The amazing sinfulness of sin was evident even in David's kingdom. We see it in the rebellion of Sheba. We see it in the ruination of women. We see it in the ruthlessness of his chief commander, Joab. And fourthly, we see it in the reaction of the people. The bulk of the Israelites were a fickle bunch, weren't they? I was just reading through this text and the text that preceded it, and I'm like, first they rebelled against David under Absalom. Then Absalom, after Absalom was defeated and died, all the men of Israel came to the king. (laughs) They're even fighting over who gets to escort him back to Jerusalem. Then after getting into a tiff with the men of Judah, all the men of Israel withdraw from David and follow Sheba. And now we'll see that once Sheba loses his head, they all become one happy army again under David. Proverbs 20, verse 6 says, Many claim, I'm a loyal person, but who can actually find one? (laughs) Such people are few and far between. Many people will proclaim their goodness. Many people will proclaim their loyalty. But Scripture says, who can find someone who's really loyal? a faithful man, a faithful woman. But they do exist. Judge Stewart, by God's grace, was one of them. And we find a faithful woman right here in verses 14 to 22, a woman whose wisdom saved a city. Look at verse 14 and on. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Bethmeacah, and all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. Let me just pause right there and say, apparently he didn't get much of a following after the initial abandonment of David because only the Bichrites are with him at this point. He's gone throughout the whole territory of Israel. Verse 15, And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Bethmeacah. They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman called from the city, Listen! Listen! Tell Joab, come here that I may speak with you. And he came near her. And the woman said, are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I'm listening. Then she said, they used to say in former times, let them ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled the matter. I'm one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, Far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. Stop right there. Are you kidding me? (laughs) Far be it from me, far be it from me that I should swallow up and destroy. It's like, Joab, that's like the legacy of your life. That's what you make your business do and you live by the sword. I just thought that was so ironic. Far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. Verse 21, that is not true. Yes, it is, Joab. That is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim, called Sheba the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give up him alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, behold, his head will be thrown to you over the wall. 
Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he, no mind. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home. And Joab returned to Jerusalem. And Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. It's amazing the thoughts that come to my mind sometimes when I'm reading a text. Um, I was going to say Sheba quit while he was ahead. But, <laughs> but the wise woman of Abel Bethmeica understood this principle from Scripture. Throw out the troublemakers and things will quiet down. Fightings and quarrels will cease. Sheba was a worthless man. That's what Scripture calls him. He was a worthless man who divided a nation and nearly destroyed a city. But one wise woman reunited the nation and saved her city because her counsel was pure gold. She was a woman of wisdom. And I thought to myself, and now I'll ask you, what sort of effect do your words have on other people? Do they stir them up? Do they hurt people? Do they create division? Do they have a polarizing effect in an unbiblical manner? Proverbs 29.8 says, People with no regard for others can throw whole cities into turmoil, but those who are wise keep things calm. Do you bring a calming influence to others? Do you bring a measure of calm, a spirit of calm into a conflict? Do you, by God's grace, cause wisdom to prevail in a situation that has many people stressed out? Well, David's kingdom was unstable. But by God's grace, and thanks to faithful people like this woman, it was still standing. And this takes us to the final verses of 2 Samuel 20, verses 23 to 26. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was command of the Carathites and the Pelophites, the royal guard. And Adoram was in charge of the forced labor, and Jehoshaphat, the son of, Eli, of Ahilud, was recorder, and Shiva, not Sheba, but Shiva, was secretary, and Zadok and Abiathar were priests. And Ira the Jerite was also David's priest. Now there could be a lot said actually about this text and comparing it to a former text that shows David's kingdom was stable somewhat at this point, but it's not nearly as strong as it once was. But we'll save that for another time. I think the main point we can get from these closing verses is summarized well by Dale Davis who wrote, in their own way, these verses quietly say that the kingdom of David was still intact. In spite of all the corruption from within and attacks from without, the kingdom was still standing. End quote. God in his grace held this kingdom together. And as the history of Israel would show, sometimes it was by a mere thread. We see that throughout the historical books and the books of the prophets. And I believe God not only held the kingdom together, but sometimes by a thread for two reasons. Number one, to show the depravity of man and the instability that sin brings into our lives and into our kingdoms 
But he also caused it to hold on by a thread for a second reason. And that was to show the dependability of God's promise. That he would one day bring a savior whose kingdom would last forever. God held the kingdom together. Because he is dependable. His promises never fail. And King Jesus would rule forever. Drawing from multiple scriptures, John Woodhouse writes, and I'll close with this quote, The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ announces the day when the kingdom of the world has become the king, the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Revelation eleven fifteen. We who have come to Jesus are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Hebrews twelve twenty eight. In this kingdom to which we belong and for which we are waiting, there is no place for underhanded ways like Joab. This kingdom cannot be built by cunning, by deceit, or by brute force. Church politicians, take note. This kingdom is not a matter of politics. It is a matter of righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, as much as we, many of us since our youth, have admired King David, the closer we look at his life and his kingdom and his legacy, we become all the more disillusioned with David and all the more um, impressed by the ultimate king, our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we know that that uh, David was a man after your own heart, but that means that he was by, it doesn't mean that he was by any means perfect. But he pointed us to the king whose, whose reign, whose righteousness, whose love would last forever. I pray as, as much as we may admire certain aspects about David and his kingdom, help us to see most importantly how it fits into the framework of the kingdom that you are building on the cornerstone Jesus Christ. I pray that our trust would be in Christ alone for our salvation and for the strength that he gives us from day to day. A mighty fortress are you, O God. You are our bulwark, never failing. And for that we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.